Amen. If you'll find in your uh, Bibles while you're still standing, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. And actually, as you find that, feel free to uh, grab a seat. We have a longer passage this morning, so find that in your Bibles, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Have that open uh, on your lap, and let me read for you uh, from Luke's gospel, uh, picking up from where Calvin left off last week for us. I hear then God's holy word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, and he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to you uh, to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wonder and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. He went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among people. This is God's word for us this morning. Let me pray. O Lord, as your word is opened up in the power of your spirit, would we see Jesus and see him clearly? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have in this passage the first time that God speaks in a definitive way to his people after about 400 years of silence. Uh, Trying to think of what that would be like Uh, One author points to the Apollo 13 uh, mission. Uh, Let me read uh, for you. 
uh, to illustrate the 400 years of silence prior to the coming of Christ. Uh, This author compares it to the Apollo 13 incident. On the evening of April 13th, when the crew was 200,000 miles away from Earth and closing in on the moon, mission controller, the mission controller saw a low-pressure warning signal on the Odyssey. Alarm lights lit up the Odyssey and in mission control as the oxygen pressure fell and power disappeared. Uh, the crew notified mission control with the now famous Houston, we have a problem. Uh, now flash forward, you know, this exciting, uh, amazing story. But as the crew was getting ready to re-enter Earth's atmosphere, there would be a blackout period lasting a few minutes. During the silence, mission, mission control uh, petitioned over and over again, Apollo 13, this is Houston, do you read me? Uh, the author comments, the Apollo 13 blackout lasted only a few minutes. Imagine 400 years of silence. Then the silence was broken. At the right time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, and fulfilled all the promises and all the prophecies. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And so when you think of this 400 years of silence, uh, when no prophet was being risen up in Israel to speak uh, to God's people, and there were people longing to hear, what's the first thing that God says? How does God show up? In this case, the illustration that I just read actually gets it wrong. Because he actually shows up first through the words of an angel to an elderly priest in Israel. Um, I was struck by this this year for the first time. When when is the first time that God announces the good news uh, that Jesus uh, will come after those 400 years? It's exactly in this moment, in this text, in the Gospel of Luke. I want to look at it with you uh, to say, what does God do here? What does God say? What does he announce? But also, how does he do it? What's the manner in which uh, he does this? After 400 years, right? Uh, have you ever uh, planned a surprise for somebody, maybe Christmas or birthday or, or something, and, and you spend months and months planning, getting the perfect gift, you know, setting up the surprise party? I mean, your, your joy sort of grows as it happens, and you're, and you're tempted to break in a couple weeks before, but no, 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 keep it, keep it going, keep it going. Well, after 400 years of God's sovereign plotting and working, what do we see here? We see God working in a cosmic, epic, all-encompassing way, but at the exact same time in an intimate, personal, life-bringing way. And so as we look, uh, the point of the message this morning is that you would see with certainty. That you would see with certainty. And this flows right out of verses 1 through 4. Calvin helped us last week to say, what was the purpose of Luke's whole book? He was writing to Theophilus and therefore to you uh, in the Spirit that you would have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Uh, That he wants you to see all that God has accomplished among us and that you would have certainty concerning these things. And you're thinking, okay, Luke, where are you going to start? I want you to have certainty of all that's been accomplished. And where does he start but in verse 5? That there's this particular unknown priest and his wife who can't have a child. So let's look. Let's look and see with certainty, number one, the God who answers impossible prayers. The God who answers impossible uh, prayers. You'll notice all the names in verses 5 through 7. 
As a side note, I think this is part of that certainty that Luke wants his people to have. Uh, This isn't a fairy tale. Uh, This isn't uh, sort of plucking things from here and there and sort of stringing them together. Uh, This is specific. In the days of Herod, Herod the Great, uh, who who would have been uh, in power from 37 to about 4 BC, right up until the birth of Christ. So he situates it historically. This is a man named Zechariah. And not just that of the division of Abijah. There were 24 divisions in the priesthood, and he names the particular one. Why would you do that if you're trying to make up a story, right? And his wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And look at the detail here. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, we've talked about this before. Does this mean that they were sinless? No. Uh, read the rest of Luke. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, right? Uh, that uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who need that, know that they need a Savior. But Luke here uses righteous and blameless in the sense that they were faithful. They belonged to God. They were walking in his ways. But verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. We'll get back to that uh, in just a moment. But we see that Zechariah then is chosen, or it's his turn to be priest before the Lord, his division. Remember, there's 24 divisions. Each would serve for two weeks every year. And so Zechariah just happens to be on duty here. And it says, according to the custom, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Uh, if you picture the, the, the temple, um, as you get deeper and deeper, you would eventually get to the Holy of Holies. That's not where he's going to be in the temple. Uh, there's a veil before the Holy of Holies. Remember, uh, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to sacrifice for the people of God. But Exodus 30 tells us about uh, this altar of incense, which is sort of the next level out called the Holy Place. Not the Holy of Holies, but the Holy Place. And this would be a great privilege. Many priests would never do this. Uh, this would be a great privilege for him. And he would go and burn incense. And Exodus 30 tells us that this was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Uh, this wasn't a sacrifice. He wasn't burning a sacrifice on the altar in this case. Uh, but this sweet aroma going up before the Lord, which we know, if you look at Revelation 8.4, is the prayers of God's people that go up to him like incense. Uh, and, and you see, as the text goes on, that the people are outside praying for Zechariah, uh, praying for Israel. Uh, this passage is saturated in prayer, uh, both explicitly the, uh, the role that he would have as priest to pray for the nation of Israel, uh, the other priests praying for him, and implicitly the prayers that he and his wife have had for many years. And so we first see that God is answering impossible prayers on a cosmic level. The the hopes and fears of all the years, it is coming to fruition here. Zechariah is going before the presence of God, and he is bringing the longings of God's people before God, praying that the Messiah would come, uh, praying that he would make right, that uh, he would drive out their oppressors, that he would reestablish his presence and power in Israel, that he would raise up prophets once again. So first and foremost, this is the impossible prayer that God is beginning to answer in this passage. When uh, the angel appears to him, and as is typical, right, if you go throughout scripture, an angel appears, and uh, what's the first reaction people have? 
fear. <laughs> um, I think we all would. The angel comes, he has fear, and he's comforted. Do not be afraid because your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. But the next lines are striking, right? We, we think of that cosmic, epic, please, Lord, send a Messiah. That prayer has been heard. But what, what does the angel specifically say? Uh, your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a child. And you shall call his name John. Now, was Zechariah praying for a child in that moment? We don't know. But given the details that Luke gave us, that they were, uh, she was barren, presumably for many years, that both were advanced in years, it's, it's not reasonable, unreasonable to think that perhaps in that moment, he, that's not what he was praying for. He might have been. But either way, whether that prayer was given many years before or in that moment, the angel says, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. So do you see what God's doing here? 400 years of silence. He sends an angel to a priest. I mean, that's, that seems big picture epic. Of course, in the temple with a priest and the angel comes and, and the first announcement of good news is Zechariah, your wife will bear a son. What does that say about this God and how he works? That after all these years, even as he's starting to fulfill the longings of all of his people, he would meet with this one person and, and his wife in their personal aching prayers as a couple. We know, of course, that this isn't the first time that God has done this. I think back in scripture to Sarah in the book of Genesis, who, who couldn't bear a son, and, and then God visits, and, and, and they bear a son, a promise, or Rebecca, or Rachel, or Hannah that we read about in 1 Samuel, or the mother of Samson in the book of Judges, or Elisha with the, a Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4. God loves to do this. God loves to show up at these epic moments of redemptive history and yet do it in such a way that the personal needs of his people are met. And let me just say, there's good news hidden throughout this whole passage. Look again at verse 6 through 7. Especially for those who have struggled with infertility or struggled with uh, miscarriages or both, or for those who long for a child and have not been able to have one. Look at verses 6 and 7. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of his commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. The fact that God and the Holy Spirit, through Luke, put those two verses together. For those experiencing verse 7, it's extremely tempting to think that verse 6 has no bearing on their life, that perhaps it's because of their unrighteousness, that they don't have favor with God. That's why they don't have a child. But verse 6 and 7 together tell us that that's not it, that they were righteous, blameless before God, and yet they had a no child. And one author I came across helps us think through the aching pain, in this case of, uh, of miscarriage in particular. 
Uh, in a, uh, this author in a novel speaks of a young woman named Susan who has a miscarriage. After learning that the baby was a girl, her husband tries to comfort her by saying, I hope the next one's a boy. But she describes how many women feel after a miscarriage. They were not toys on a shelf, one falling and breaking and the next coming up in one piece. No, she had lost her daughter. And she learned freshly, scorchingly, of the privacy of sorrow. It was as though she had been escorted through a door into some large and private club that she had not even known existed, of women who had miscarried. Society did not care much for them. It really didn't. And the women in the club mostly passed each other silently. People outside the club said, you'll have another one, and moved on. Look at this good news that is beginning to be announced. After 400 years, God comes to a couple who would have experienced some of that ache, some of that heartache, some of those longing prayers uh, that, that had not been answered in the way that they would uh, long for in their hearts. And yet God is showing up in their life and beginning to work, even as we'll see as he announces what is going to happen. And so let me ask you, what impossible prayers are you praying? Or are you praying impossible prayers? Prayers that, if they're to be answered, only God can do it. Now let's ponder what kind of prayers we could be praying as a people, as individuals, as families, knowing that this is the God who works mightily and personally in our lives. And so number one, I long that you would see with certainty the God who answers impossible prayers. But number two, that you would see with certainty the God who accomplishes impossible things. The God who in, accomplishes impossible uh, things. This isn't the God who waits for the stars to align. This is the God who aligns the stars uh, to do his bidding, to set up after 400 years exactly how he would want this to go. Luke uh, begins his gospel. And, and again, Luke's the only one who gives us these details, right? He knows that there's many oral traditions going around. Perhaps one of the other gospels is already written at this point. And he says, Theophilus, and he says to you, I want you to have certainty. I want you to know what God has done among us. So let's start here. Let's start with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, let's, let me show you God's fingerprints all along. Uh, let's see, what wouldn't have been possible unless God was acting in this case? Well, remember we said that there was 24 divisions. They, they work you know, two weeks out of the year. Uh, we would say that God placed this in such a way that Zechariah was on duty at just a time as this. And then it says, according to the custom, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple. Uh, in my research, there, were, there would be about 18,000 priests of which they would choose from to come and do what Zechariah is doing. And so by lot, as we see even at the beginning of uh, the book of Acts, as, as an apostle is chosen in the same way, uh, not a repeatable pattern that we continue to use, but God, uh, uh, as the book of Proverbs says, that you, you, task the, you toss the lot in the lap, but it's God who determines, right? And so he has determined Zechariah, not only to be among those just that happen to be at the temple at this time, but Zechariah would be the one to go in and to burn incense. It, I, again, a privilege that many priests would never experience. Where else are God's fingerprints? Well, an angel doesn't just show up. God sends this angel uh, to speak. 
And then as the story goes on, we'll see in a moment the announcement that the angel gives. Uh, We'll see Zachariah's questioning, how will I know this? We're advanced in years, how am I supposed to believe this? And And the angel gives a sign. In one sense, Zechariah is asking for a sign, and he gets one he didn't expect, uh, that he's not going to be able to talk until John is born, until this is all fulfilled. And even that, God's fingerprints are all over this. God's hand at work. Notice also how many times it says, before God, or before the Lord. Right? They walked righteously before God in verse 6. Uh, the angel appears uh, to him. Uh, and uh, verse 15, as he speaks of John, for he will be great before the Lord. And verse 17, he will go, the Lord will go before him. Uh, or in, uh, in verse uh, 19, he says, I, in the, I stand in the presence of God. After 400 years, Luke is telling us, God shows up. And God begins to speak to his people. And God begins to act in a cosmic and yet personal way. God begins to accomplish things among his people. And of course, we, we start to think ahead, right? I mean, Luke puts these parallel. We, we're going to see, uh, we remember Mary and, and her announcement. We remember the birth of Christ. He's putting John and Jesus right next to each other to show that he is about to accomplish a mighty things. And I'll ask you, what do you need God to accomplish for you? If you're a believer in Jesus, you know that he's accomplished the greatest thing in sending Jesus Christ, a born of a virgin, who grew to be a man great before the Lord, who learned obedience through his suffering, who went to the cross to bear the sins of his people, and that that wasn't the end of the story, that he rose again in power so that all those who were united to him in faith would have life and have it abundantly. If, if you believe that is true... He's done the hardest thing. What do you need him to accomplish in your life that only he can accomplish? This, of course, relates to the question we already asked. What impossible prayers do you, do you need to start praying? Because this is the God who accomplishes impossible things. And number three, this is the God who announces impossibly good news. This is the God who announces impossibly a good news. And that's why the, at the, in your bulletin it says the gospel according to Gabriel. Um, we're not suggesting there's another scriptural gospel that you should consider. Um, but if you look, look at what Gabriel says in verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. That's all one word, to bring you this good. Well, you isn't, but to bring good news is a verb euangelizo, uh, uh, right? We, we get evangelical or the gospel. He is saying, I come to preach good news to you. So this is the first gospel uh, sermon given to Zechariah here at, in private in the temple. And what does that sermon consist of? What does that good news consist of? Because we don't even yet see the name of Jesus yet, Right? Now, Luke's readers would know that he's talking about John. They would already know that, oh, it's going to lead to Jesus, right? So it's not that it was a mystery at this stage, but Luke, uh, if all we had was Luke 1, 5 through 25, what's the gospel so far? After 400 years, what's the gospel so far? Look with me back in um, uh, verse 13. We sort of get to the heart of the passage here. 
Uh, Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard and your wife will bear you a son. Again, that's the first part of the good news. Your wife will bear a son. You shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For you will be great before, he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. This speaks to the setting apart of him as this great prophet. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and they will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What's the gospel? What's the good news so far? It's Zechariah, you will have a son. Zechariah, that son's name will be John. Uh, Zechariah, that son, your son John, will have a very specific purpose. He will be a prophet in the likes of Elijah, right? Remember when Jesus appears on the mountain with his disciples, who's there with him? Moses and who? Elijah. Uh, God, these mighty prophets that sort of summarize sort of the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament. He's saying your son who to be born will be in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's going to turn God's people's hearts. He's going to make them ready. He's going to prepare the way. God shows up. God announces and he is about to do mighty things. And it's going to start through the ministry of John. And so again, see how this good news is both epic, uh, unfathomable, it's, it's huge. It's all the promises of the Old Testament, all the prophecies, uh, the work of Elijah himself foreshadowing this day that would come. And it's announced through this angel, but it's experienced in such a personal way. Look at verse 24. Or I guess verse 23. Uh, he, again, after... After the angel uh, makes him mute as a sign. Uh, so th- there's some discipline having, some love and di- loving discipline. Uh, but ultimately, this will be a gift for Zechariah. Because as we'll see, uh, when his tongue is loosed again, as he declares that his son's uh, uh, a name shall be John, uh, you know that this grew his faith as well. But he goes home and talk about God accomplishing impossible things. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Do you see the personal nature, the intimate nature for Elizabeth here? Even as they're receiving this good news that is is beyond fathoming. We'll see in the rest of, of, of the Gospel of Luke, all these people who are waiting for the consolation of Israel waiting for for the the age, the day that they longed to come, that the the Messiah would come. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are receiving that. They're rejoicing in that. But they're rejoicing in the birth, uh, miraculously, of this son, or here, the conception of of this son. And, And look at what Elizabeth says. Think of the personal nature of her reception of this. You know, she she keeps herself hidden. And Luke doesn't tell us why. I think there's good ways that we can ponder that, but it might have to do with the reproach that she's about to talk about. But she keeps this so intimate. This isn't this public, amazing thing that will be when John is born, but here it is her receiving this with the Lord intimately. 
And she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among people. God is often called in the Old Testament the, the God of seeing or the God who sees. How many times he, he met with, uh, especially uh, women, struggling and, and intimately worked, and, and they said, you're the God who sees me. You're the God who knows me. She says, to take away my reproach from among people. You know, wrongly, uh, the people then and wrongly often people now, there's a reproach, even if it's not spoken. Uh, there's a, a shaming that happens when someone is struggling with infertility and she's rejoicing that that's being taken away and she knows by, by whom. Have you experienced the gospel in this kind of way? You know, in other words, it, it's, it, it, it's not like uh, sort of this epic story, this epic story of redemption that sort of just sort of goes by your view and you might take note of it and say, that, that's amazing. But would you be able to say that he has taken away my reproach? He has looked upon me. Look at what he's done for me in the days that he looked upon me. Perhaps you could think of a person in your life that, um, you know, if you went to them for help, uh, you, you knew that they wouldn't just help with the big things, the big questions of life, although they would. But whether you could articulate it or not, just being with that person was helpful. Just, just getting in the car and talking about life and praying together. I, I can think of my old youth pastor, Brent, being this way, uh, that maybe I'd come to him with some big question, or so I thought. <laughs> and, and just in the course of my time with him, as he asked about how things were going, as we prayed about this, we would end up talking about things that I never planned to talk about and yet he was caring in an intimate way. Can you see the gospel of the kingdom working in this way? Think of, think of a stream coming out of the Old Testament, all the promises, all the hopes and fears of all the years, this, this great stream growing in strength, coming into these very days of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we'll see Mary and others. And it's gaining strength, but you know, perhaps like the Nile itself as it expands, but the way that God does this is not just like a rushing river that sort of blows past and says, I hope you see it. You know, Jump on and hang on if you can. No, it, it's, it, it grows, but it works its way through different tributaries. It, it, it goes into places where the ground is the most parched and, and brings nourishment and life, and, and those tributaries come back into the mainstream and so that God works to bring his son in the most miraculous way, born of a virgin. But it starts by caring for this elderly couple in Israel. And so when you start comparing what's happening here, you have, you have the miraculous, as it were, birth of a, of, uh, to a barren woman, but then even more so the miraculous birth, the unimaginable birth of one to a virgin. You think of the roles of these uh, two uh, children who will be born, one a prophet who prepares a way for the other who is the savior of the world. Or you think of these two recipients, Zechariah and Mary. Zechariah hears with some doubt, and we understand, but if you go to verse 36, actually verse 37, the angel says, nothing will be impossible with God. And verse 38, Mary says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And Elizabeth praises her later for her obedience to uh, the, the word. 
In other words, God is working in such a way that he sweeps up in, in, the, in the scope of his life-giving gospel, a barren woman, a longing priest, a virgin girl, watching shepherds, sin-burdened outcasts, leaders of Israel who are rethinking things and, and, and thinking they might need a savior. All of them are swept up, and that means we could be swept up into the good news of this kingdom of God. And we can see these things with certainty knowing that he is a God who answers prayer, who does impossible things for his people, and who brings good news that indeed is for all those who will receive it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't have to wait centuries, but we have your word available to us right now. We thank you that you spoke uh, to this a particular couple, that you use them in the grand plan of redemption for your glory. Would you do the same for us, Lord? Uh, We want our lives to just be part of the grander stream of your gospel going to the nations for your glory. And so would you work in your people even today, even this week, to comfort them, uh, to strengthen them? And I pray this in Jesus' name.